Welcome to the Meet Your Maker podcast, where we're going cover to cover in order to discover the glory, grace, and gift of knowing Christ, our Lord. Genesis 19, 16. Let me read this verse to you. Uh, Genesis chapter 19, verse 16. Talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. One verse is really on my heart tonight. But he lingered. Talking about Lot. It'll make sense in a moment. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to them. To him. And they brought him out and set him outside. You know, this past week, if you're following along with your F-260 in reading along with the weekly plan, you've read some stories this past week that are, I'm going to say, very familiar uh, to probably 100% of the people in here. For no other reason that you're living in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Uh, And so these stories would have some familiarity to you, I have no doubt about it. Uh, one of those stories uh, comes to us in the form of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you may not know anything else about Sodom and Gomorrah except that God destroyed it because it was a sinful city. And I would say, Amen. You, you are correct. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, I'd be willing to say that your familiarity with this story is so strong that you could just quickly rattle off all these facts about Sodom and Gomorrah. Shoot, you could probably even tell me Ezekiel's prophetic explanation for why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And hey, kudos to you if you can. You ought to know those things. But I couldn't help as I read this passage, uh, and as God spoke to me through it, I couldn't help but think that your familiarity with it has probably shielded your eyes somewhat from seeing the glory that is here in this text. So have you ever read the Sodom and Gomorrah passage and pondered about the sovereign grace that rescues Lot? Have you you ever pondered the grace of God that is persevering, irresistible, conquering, prevailing, persevering, strong and mighty? Have Have you ever considered that when reading this passage in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's just oozing like honey for the soul from this text, from that verse I've just read. Let me read it one more time for you, and we'll jump into this. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. So here's our goal tonight. We're going to walk up to the window. If the Bible's a window that we look through to see God, We're going to walk up to the window looking towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit working in your heart, I prayed this all week, working in your heart, will see the rays of his sovereign mercy embedded in his righteous justice as he destroys these ancient twin cities. But if we wish to feel what I believe Moses wants us to feel when we read those first three words, but he lingered. If you're going to feel the shock of that statement, then we've got to see it as it unfolds in the story's larger context. And so to that end, we need to to meet this person uh, by the name of Lot. I think it's imperative for us to recognize that 
Lot did not grow up in Sodom. He wasn't born and raised there. Uh, it was a progression that got Lot to Sodom. In fact, I can say this, that for a large majority of Lot's life, he didn't live in Sodom. He was not a resident of Sodom for very long at all. But how did Lot come to this awful place that we hear about? That God just rains down fiery hell from the heavens and just totally wipes off the face of the, uh, face of the earth. How does Lot end up there? Well, let's jump back to the first time we meet Lot in the Bible and trace his story from there. And you'll see these pop up on the screen as we go through. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, we read this. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son and his daughter-in-law Sarah, and his sons Abram's wife. And they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So, in the storyline of Scripture, a holy migration has started. Terah, for reasons not revealed, has decided to move his family away from the Chaldeans and to the lands of Canaan. However, for reasons not revealed yet again, Terah stops in this place called Haran, apparently for such a long time that he passes away there in Haran. But, no worries, Abram... Terah's son, who later becomes Abraham, takes up the divine call and resumes this task. And this time it is very clear that this holy migration has begun by God and has a divine purpose from God. And so at this point, we read another line about this man named Lot in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord has told him. Listen to the wording here carefully. And Lot went with him, willingly. There's nothing in that passage that would give you any other reason to think that Lot willingly chose to go with Abram. This is a good thing. He has started out on a good path. He started out strong. Because you know what Abraham did, right? Abraham heard God say, leave everything you know and go to the land that I will show you. Abandon everything in your life and trust me with everything, Abraham. And Abraham did it. And Lot said, sounds like a good idea. Started out strong in his journey with the Lord. Started out strong in his faith. Abraham didn't have to force Lot to go with him. Lot went with him. All through the land of Canaan, they went. And all along the way, Lot was watching this faithful obedience of his righteous uncle Lot, or righteous uncle Abraham. We talked about it Sunday morning, remember? Looking towards the heavens, and he believes God, and God counts it to him as righteousness. To be fair, though, he also saw some terrible decisions that Abraham made. There's that one scandal in Egypt that like almost stained Abraham's entire life. Uh, if you want to read about that, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. But for our purposes, we're going to move on because the next time we meet Lot after Genesis 12 is post-Egypt scandal when they're actually leaving Egypt and heading towards the Negev, which is the southern desert part of the nation of Israel. Abram went up, Genesis 13, 1, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, now listen to the difference, and Lot with him. What's missing there? Went. Lot went with him. Now it's Lot with him. So it already kind of seems that something is different here. 
What's happening with Lot? Now, at this point, Lot's character really begins to emerge to us, I think. He may have been an obedient young nephew when he first started out. But somewhere along the way, Lot has become a not-so-nice, rebellious teenager or young man who has also come into his own. Moses tells us that Lot, at this point in the story, has also become a wealthy, wealthy man just like his uncle Abraham. Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 through 6 says this, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. When you have a problem like that, it's only a matter of time before trouble begins brewing in paradise. And let me tell you, there was some more of a storm brewing for this guy named Lot. You see, because of too many possessions and because of too little space, the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham get kind of mad at each other. They're running all up on each other, and they begin to argue. And so to resolve this issue, Abraham, being the more generous and the more righteous of the two, instructs his nephew to take a vast look across this huge land that God is going to give them. And I know I'm paraphrasing here, but just to help you see this, I can almost hear Abraham say, Lot, why are we bickering over one acre of land, over one pasture? Look at everything the Lord will give us. If you think that the left looks to be greener pastures, take it. If you think the right is the greener pastures, take it. Whatever you have to do, Lot. Let's just not bicker. We're family, for heaven's sake. Whatever we got to do to stop arguing. Well, Lot, and he's portrayed kind of as this, Lot licking his chops as he looks towards the entire plain of the Jordan was, I think, just astounded that his uncle was going to give him the land that he wanted to choose. This land that was watered like the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis 13.10, had his uncle really lost his mind now. Hey, is, is Abraham off his rocker? Well, no worries. Uh, Abraham's nonchalant behavior shall not impede the ambition of young Lot. And so what does Lot do? Moses tells us, Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Abram went to live in Canaan. Now listen to this. And Lot went to live in the cities down on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. You see the progression here? First he went with Abraham. And then Lot was with Abraham. And then Lot began to argue with Abraham. And now Lot moves away from Abraham. And this entire time he's getting closer and closer to that ancient, terrible city called Sodom. Progressively moving closer to this awfully wicked place. Here's the first mention of Lot's apparent affinity for Sodom. And as the story progresses, we quickly learn that just living right outside really wasn't good enough for him. He wants to be in there. He sees the city lights. He sees all the things going on. Pitch my tent outside of Sodom. Are you kidding me? I'll take up residence inside of Sodom. And that's exactly what happens? Well, it wasn't long before trouble was again brewing in paradise. 
because a skirmish arises between two coalitions of kings. And, and I could go through and read those two, but why would I do that and waste my time pronouncing all those ridiculously hard names? And so I'm just going to follow the tally marks, really, that Moses gives. There was four kings against five kings. Okay, Moses, pretty easy. But despite lacking one king, the four kings prevailed against the five kings. And you know what happens? When they prevail over those five kings, the four kings come in and just ransack Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, they just tear the place to shreds. And they also kidnap Lot and run off with him. For he was living in Sodom, Moses says in Genesis 14, 12. Abraham, who may have been a coward years earlier in Egypt when he pretended that his wife was really his sister to save his own skin... Uh, suddenly has grew some more of a backbone. And so he ponies up with his horses and he rides out like the wild, wild west with 318 men from his household. And surprise, surprise, they catch up to the four kings who have just wreaked havoc all over the plain of the Jordan. And it's so stunning of a victory that Moses really writes it almost like this. They came, they saw, they conquered. And Lot went back with Abraham. Really, that quick, Abraham pulls off this miraculous victory. Abraham rescues Lot in the process, brings him back with all his people and his wealth. And you would think, right, can we be honest? You would think that at this point, Lot's, like the light bulbs would go off and Lot's going, you know, Sodom looked good before. I just don't know if it's that appealing anymore to me. I mean, you, you see what just, I just got kidnapped because of these wicked people and their evilness and their anger and their pride. Because of their sinfulness and their unrighteousness. Judgment has come and I was caught up in the midst of it. You may think that Lot would wisen up at this point and think, raising a family in Sodom, are you kidding me? I'll go back with my uncle, Abraham. I'll bicker with his shepherds before I live in Sodom with my kids. But don't be quick to assume. Because Lot apparently has an uncanny affinity to this place of Sodom. He just can't stay away from it. The next time we meet Lot is at the opening chapter of chapter 19. And shockingly, he is sitting at the city gates of Sodom. Once again, trouble is brewing in paradise, but this time it's not at the hands of some foreign king, but the righteous judgment of a holy God. Now I need to say one short word about the scene that immediately comes before our text tonight if we're going to understand it. It's this intriguing conversation that happens in Genesis chapter 18 between Abraham and the angel of the Lord. It's verses 16 to 33 if you want to read it later if you haven't already. The Lord in this passage reveals to Abraham that he's fixing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I've had it up to here, Abraham. Their cries have filled heaven. They're terrible. Judgment is coming. And Abraham, you know, Listening into this conversation. And then the Lord sends two angels to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to investigate. You know, are the cries legitimate? They filled heaven. Are they legitimate? Abraham, you know, apparently thinks that no investigation is needed. He knows exactly what those two angels are going to find in that place called Sodom. 
They're going to find sexual immorality, wickedness like you've never seen before in your life, and that rascal nephew of his named Lot. Lot's a righteous man. Peter calls him righteous Lot in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'll tell you in a minute why I think he is righteous, why the Scripture reveals him to be that. And Abraham knows that Lot is righteous. See, we can't read this story. Here's the problem. If you read this story and think that, well, Abraham's just real concerned about his just little rascal nephew. No, Abraham knew that Lot was righteous. This is a theological confrontation here. Lord, will you really sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? Surely the just judge of all the earth will do what is just. And so Abraham begins to kind of whittle God down, or so it seems. Lord, what if, what if you found 50 righteous people inside them? What if there's 50 righteous people living down there? Would you still kill the entire city? The Lord assures him, Abraham, no. If there are 50 righteous, I will spare the entire city for the sake of the 50. What about 45? Yeah, 40. Yes, Abraham. 30. Yes! 20? Yes, Abraham. What about 10? Yes, I will spare it for 10. And the Lord finished talking with him and left off from the conversation. Now, you may wonder, and if you read through this story, maybe the question crossed your mind, why 10? Why stop at 10? Why not try to go down to like 0.25, you know? <laughs> why stop at 10? Seems like a long way to 10, really. A lot of scholars think that Abraham was counting on Lot, who we know is righteous, from the Bible itself. He was counting on Lot's wife, their two children. So we got four. Lot had two sons-in-laws, or soon to be, six. We could stop there. We could assume that Lot has two other daughters that maybe already are living with their not-to-be-married-yet sons-in-laws. So at the best, you got eight people, probably six, because I don't know how you'd count them two as righteous. So maybe, maybe Abraham's looking at this and going, surely, surely Sodom can produce four righteous people. Surely. As the story tells us, the angels would only find one. One person. One righteous man. One righteous person named Lot. That's a far cry from ten righteous people, isn't it? Long way from ten. However, the Lord will not sweep away even one righteous person with the unrighteous. Now, he's not going to spare the city. Punishment is coming. God doesn't ignore sinfulness. Don't buy into this cultural Christianity. The Lord doesn't turn his back on that. He's dealing with it. But he's not going to let the righteous one perish. God will not lose one of his own. And so what's God going to do? He's going to rescue Lot. He's going to rescue righteous Lot. The Lord will bring down judgment on these unrighteous twin cities. 
Their wickedness will be dealt with holy vengeance, requiring recompense for those who had suffered. Don't misunderstand me. The unrighteous men of Sodom will go away to punishment, but the Lord, by his sovereign grace, will rescue righteous Lot. There it is, judgment and yet mercy. Judgment in the midst of mercy. Mercy in the midst of judgment. So back to Genesis 19 which is after Abraham's intercession and where our passage is tonight. The two angels enter Sodom, you know this narrative well, and receive a warm, surprising, and somewhat generous welcome from Lot. And so like uncle, like nephew in this case. Uh, The point will be obvious, though, as you read through the story, Lot, who is mirroring the actions of his righteous uncle Abraham, who at the earlier part of chapter 18 was so hospitable to God's angels. And so here, Lot mirrors righteous Abraham. So the first clue there, and it certainly is contrasted with the wicked men of Sodom, who in a dramatic scene begin to try to beat down the door to Lot's house. And their entire point, the intention is clear. There's no reason to be shy about it. They wanted to have homosexual relationships and abuse these two angels. Lot, knowing this, tries to detour them from it, tries to safeguard the house. He goes outside, but he's very unsuccessful. And in a moment where these wicked men of Sodom are fixing to beat down the door, (laughs) I love this, but the angels reached out and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were not able to find the entrance. Rescue number two from the wicked men of Sodom complete. I say number two because Abraham has already saved Lot's rear end once. Rescue number two complete. And obviously, the investigation is over. (laughs) Investigation over. We've seen enough. And the angels inform Lot that they're about to destroy the city of Sodom and he best get out lest he be swept away in God's holy wrath. And he should go and get any family or friends who will listen to him. Don't miss this. God has graciously given Lot a message of salvation here. God didn't have to warn Lot. You realize that, right? Like Lot's stupidity landed him in Sodom. He got rescued once. He went back again. He knew what kind of place this was, but he was okay with living there. God didn't have to warn him, but he did. Because he will not sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. God never loses one of his own. But how can I say that Lot is righteous? I think we see it clearly in verse 14 of chapter 19. If I have nothing else to base it on, I would say this is key. All that we need right here um, on the basis of his faith. Lot obviously believes that the word of the Lord through the angels is true. Why? Because he again reflects the obedience of Abraham and immediately goes and begins to try to convince his sons-in-law. Listen what God is fixing to do to Sodom. He's going to destroy this entire city. You're going to die if you don't come with me. Flee Sodom. And they think that he's jesting. Is how the ESV says it. They think he's joking. (laughs) They think he's joking with them. 
Lot's pouring out his heart trying to persuade these men to save their own lives, to flee God's punishment. And they laugh at him. They think he's joking about the entire matter. I can just see discouraged Lot heading back home here. I can see him just heading back so discouraged. Dragging his feet, slumping his shoulders, defeated. They've laughed into scorn. Oh, how many young Christians begin with a flame of passion to follow Christ and yet fall short because the world has laughed them to scorn. Oh, how true, how many young professing Christians at first step look a whole lot like Lot and are pursuing Christ with everything. I'm going to try to get everyone. I'm going to persuade all these people flee God's wrath. And the world laughs at you, discouraged, beaten back, dragging my feet. Oh, how similar we can look to this guy named Lot. Sometimes it's needed for that. I would say, and I think this is true on the basis of Scripture, sometimes all that's needed to correct a little discouragement and dragging your feet in your relationship with Christ is just a good old-fashioned, strong exhortation. And Lot gets that from the angels. Verse 15, the verse right before our passage. You still with me? Look what it says, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. He's still there. Morning, the sun's coming up. Lot, what you doing? Dragging him feet, son. Look at what they say to him. Up. Get up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Forget about them numbskulls that are out there that are laughing at you. Get your family, Lot. And get out of this place. Lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now I want you to feel the thrust here of the three words that Moses pins down next. I want you to feel the sword of the Spirit right here on this one. This sort of shock you. Surely Lot's disillusioned, feet-dragging attitude will be corrected by this angelic exhortation. Surely Lot will pick himself up and get out of Sodom. Surely at the angel's reminder, you will be swept away, Lot. You will die in the punishment of Sodom if you do not get up and leave. Surely Lot will stop dragging his feet. Verse 16. But he lingered. Lingered in Sodom. I think lingered is a good word choice here. The CSB uses the word hesitated in the place of lingered. And I think hesitated really is too light of a word for what's going on here in this passage. Because it's more than just a hesitation. It's more than just Lot being hesitant here in this narrative. Lot's not just second-guessing leaving Sodom. He's lingering. And do you know what lingering means? He's reluctant. He doesn't really want to leave. He 
His affinity to Sodom is so great. His love for this city is so great that he's not just dragging his feet. He really just doesn't want to go. Leave Sodom. My entire life's here. Why can't you just throw the gauntlet down on Gomorrah and leave this place alone? Leave Sodom. Everything I own is here. I've done left everything once with Abraham. Now I've got to leave it all again? I know that you probably will not like the image of light that I'm giving you. Because there's so much more here than him dragging his feet. The reality is, is he may have been dragging them to begin with. But when verse 16 says, but he lingered, you ought to understand Lot has dug his heels in. He's reluctant. He don't want to leave. He's not hesitant. He's lingering. He's wanting to stay in Sodom more than he wants to leave. This is a tragedy. This is a conundrum, if you want to call it that. This is dramatic. Do you know in the Hebrew Bible, after you read the phrase, it's really just one Hebrew word, but he lingered. Immediately after it, there's a vertical line. You know what that is? It's a reading Paul's sign. Now, I checked with a Hebrew scholar friend of mine to make sure, and it has absolutely no bearing on the interpretation of the text, which I was quite certain of. It doesn't change the way you interpret the meaning. But get this, it's for reading effect. It's for dramatic effect. But he lingered. Stop. What? Lingered. But he lingered. Pause. Put the brakes on. Think about that. Contemplate it. Wrestle with it. Don't take the easy way out and say, Lots just being lots. Don't think about it that way. Read it the way the Bible says it. But he lingered. He put his heels in the ground. He was reluctant. He didn't want to leave. Stop and think about it. Put the brakes on before you read anything else. But he lingered. Let that sink in to your mind. Now, this is the window that I've been wanting us to come to. I want you to feel that thrust there from Moses' pen. But he lingered. I want you to feel that and go, that's shocking. But the, whoa, Lot. I want you to feel that. I want you to walk up to this window, looking towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want you to peer through it. And I want you to see God's glorious works that he does. You see, if you read this story and think it's all about Lot, you're wrong. It's about God. What does God do? Do. Bad preaching is stopping right here and saying, don't drag your feet. Bad preaching would be going, pick your heels up and go off, leave, be obedient. That's bad preaching. Right? You know why it's bad preaching? Because you can't do that. Something happens next. What's God do in this passage? Let's look at it. It's absolutely breathtaking. Look at the second half of Genesis 19, 16. But he lingered. We get that. Pause. What happens next? So the men 
seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Charles Spurgeon once commented on this passage. I have always felt very pleasant about the fact that there were just enough angelic hands to take and lead out those lingering in Sodom. God will not miss one of his own. If there had been another person, <laughs> somebody might have got left behind. But God provided the exact number of hands to lead these lingering people out of the way of destruction. Love, Spurgeon. I would give a hearty amen. The sovereign grace of God will not miss, will not abandon, will not lose a single one of his children. And Lot is a vivid, and listen to me, I mean a really, really vivid picture of that. Lot's lingering because he didn't really want to leave. Lot had grown reluctant to the warning words of God. He got hard in his heart. Become discouraged at his son-in-law's jesting. Lingering in Sodom, thinking of everything he's going to leave behind. Lot's reluctant. He's lingering. He doesn't really want to leave. Lot has with his heels dug in the ground, is forced to be drugged out by God against his sin-loving, hell-bent will. How's that fit into your small God, man-centered theology? God takes him by the hand when he's got his heels dug in and drags him from the city that is fixing to be destroyed. That's amazing. That's breathtaking. That's astounding that God has done that. Shows you how much God cares for his children. Shows you how much God loves and comes after his people. I don't want to be aloof here, and I don't want to be loud about this. There is a struggle of wills that ensues in this passage. Lot's desire is to stay in Sodom. But the Lord's desire is to save Lot. The Lord's desire is to save Lot. That's why the Hebrew word being used there that we translate as seized. Do you know what it could literally be translated as? This is amazing. It can be literally translated as conquered, <laughs> prevailed, strong-armed. I don't know how to say it any other way. Lot didn't want to leave, but the Lord didn't really care what Lot wanted in that moment. Lot didn't really want to get out of Sodom. The Lord said, <laughs> you're coming with me. I know what's best for you, Lot. And don't make the mistake here and think that the angels just grew compassionate for life. Take the easy way out. Don't read this passage and go, well, Lot is so lucky that those two angels were there. He would have become fish food if he had not. He so, I can guarantee you, those two angels would dare not have presumed to take the hand of Lot had the Lord not instructed them to do so. And Moses tells us this much, does he not? He tells us what exactly the driving force is here. 
There's no way you can mistake it for some angelic compassion. Here's what he says. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Here it is. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him outside and set him outside the city. So what does this teach me about God? This is the real question here. It's not, what, what, it's not about Lot. We'll get there. It's not about what wickedness was going on inside them. Don't, don't chase wild rabbits. What's, what's God doing? What do I get about God from this text? What's God teaching me about himself here? We get so caught up in debating how Lot could be dragged out against his own will that we miss the sovereignty and the glorious grace of God being revealed here. It's amazing to me. Well, I'm just going to tell you, God should not have done that. How dare. That's how people talk about this passage. Blows my mind. What's God up to? I propose the following conclusions. God will not lose one of his own. He will never sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. That's point number one. <clears throat> point number two, if God must drag you out of Sodom against your sin-loving, hell-bent will, he will do it. God is sovereign and his grace is absolutely effective. Now listen to this. Point number three, Lot was not Angry with God. You realize that? Look at verse 19 in Genesis chapter 16 with or uh, verse uh, verse uh, 19, I'm sorry, of Genesis chapter 19. Behold, this is Lot speaking to the angels now. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. Ain't it pretty amazing that Lot doesn't go. Wish you would have left me alone. How dare you take me by the hand and pull me out of Sodom? Do you know what all I had to leave back there? I'm going to be a poor man now because of that. How dare you do that to me? Lot doesn't do that. You know why? Because saved people do not scoff at sovereign grace. I know that much. Saved people do not scoff at the God who saves them. Save people sing a song of joy because of the mercy that has been shown to them that they did not deserve. And if you find that you're one of those people that you want to debate God's sovereign grace, you want to debate about that, be careful. Use caution. God's grace is not meant to be debated about. <laughs> It's not. God's grace is meant for you to praise Him and to celebrate Him and to rejoice in what He's done. In humility, not pridefully, humbly exalting His name and His name alone. Number four, God does punish the unrighteous. Don't be goofy and presume that God will get over his anger against these unrighteous rebels. God will vindicate his justice against Sodom. God will right every wrong. God will punish evil with a righteous and a heavy hand. The Lord wasn't joking about the warning given to Lot. That's not how the story ends. You know that, right? It's not like, well, 
All right, we got Lot out of there. I'll take it. I got my, I got my goal accomplished. Lot's safe, so we'll just Sodom do your thing. So what? It's not. He's not joking. Those son-in-laws were stupid. Lot was not jesting with them. The Lord was not jesting with Lot. He destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The word of the warning was legitimate. Look how Moses ends it. Chapter 19, verses 24 through 25. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished their cities, their entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. God's not joking about punishment in Sodom. God's not joking about eternal punishment for unrighteous, unrepentant sinners. God ain't joking. He's not jesting with you. Will a judge of all the earth sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? No. If that's the theological conundrum being resolved here, the Lord says, no, I will not sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. I will sweep away the unrighteous, but I will rescue the righteous ones. So much so that even when Lot was lingering in Sodom, the Lord still rescued him. And here's what I want to say. I want to say that truth to every true child of God sitting in this room. I want to say that truth to every true born-again child of God. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Brother and sister, this is a reason to celebrate. God will not lose you. God will not abandon you. God will not give up on you. God will not turn his back on you. His grace is willing even when you are not. And his will prevails even when you linger. Even when you drag your feet. Even when you dig your heels in. His grace still doesn't give up. He will not lose one single one of his own. And can I say this? Oh, brothers and sisters. I really believe there are some lingering children here tonight. I think there's some of you that are lingering near the city gates of Sodom. I think there's some of you that are lingering. And I'm going to say this too. You're lingering in Sodom has occurred much more quickly than you ever thought that it would. I, I just said this to Nathan and Eli. Uh, I don't know where they're at. I see Nathan's head up there. I, I just told them this a while ago. We was joking about, uh, you know, it's been seven months. We've been dealing with all this stuff. And, and somebody said something about January or February. And, and I, I got to thinking, you realize where you were spiritually seven months ago? Now, I know a lot's happened, and it feels like an eternity ago. But do you remember when we were at Gallenberg? And you just had that, man, just the Spirit of God was just all over you. And we worshiped in truth and sincerity, and your hearts were on fire for the Lord. What about a year back from that up at Skyline? 
When your heart was inflamed as we studied God's sovereign grace in the story of Ruth. You remember that? That's not that long ago. Gallenberg was seven months ago. I still recall the night that I preached a message about drifting from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4 here. It's in January 2019. God done something. God began to work in your lives. God began to pull you in new ways. Your faith got on fire for the Lord. Let me tell you, I can tell you lingering because I can tell a difference in this room. Oh, man. I'm not like some supernatural person. Don't get that from me, okay? But I can tell when dead worship is going on in the room be totally honest with you. Like, I don't have to ask you if you're faking it because I can tell. (laughs) I can sense it. And some of you probably do too. You're probably, what's going on here? Seven months ago. Where were you spiritually? And we all know what happened. COVID hit. Shut down for 10 weeks, which was not good for anyone. Not in the least bit. And it just really put a damper on your flame for God, didn't it? I've told you this before and we'll tell you again. You can't blame a virus for your lukewarm attitude with Christ. You can't. Stop blaming COVID. COVID ain't the reason you feel like a million miles from the Lord. COVID ain't the reason that you're lukewarm in your relationship with Christ. Viruses don't cause you to move away from the Lord. Now, that's not to say that COVID hadn't been used by the devil to to, to steer you away. Sure, it has been. It's clearly evident in the fact, I think, uh, that there are some that act, and and they've told me, I'm scared to come to church, but I'm just going to be totally honest. I go to the high school football game, and whatever COVID concern they had two days ago has apparently disappeared. It's being real with you guys. Y'all think I don't know stuff? COVID has not caused you to be lukewarm, but it probably has exposed your real temperature. I do know that much. You see, it silenced the exhortation you were hearing in your life week after week. Abandon all these things. Abandon your idols. Follow Christ. Give your entire life to Jesus. Be passionate about following Him, giving glory to Him in everything you do. Week after week you hear that. I'm urging you to abandon these things. But here's the issue. It's not just with you guys. It's with everyone. Right? It's, it's not just Rainsville First Baptist. It's everywhere. You know what the issue is? COVID church life has become so comfortable to a lot of people. COVID, you, you tracking with that? COVID church life has become so comfortable to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Hang out in my PJs. Flip on the TV, scroll on my phone when David says something I don't like. I'll show him. I'll just turn the whole thing off. Nobody's going to know anyways. I'll go 10 weeks without going. You know what someone told me? I'm not going to say their name. But you know what someone told me? I kind of like this new church thing we're doing. I said, really, why? 
<laughs> yeah, I could feel my blood pressure just going up. I'm such a kind person, I wouldn't bite nobody's head off. You know, I wouldn't do nothing like that. I just really like this new church thing we're doing. Why? Well, it's just kind of nice that I can go hiking with my family and just we can watch church on the car, you know, on the way up there to go hiking. Like, are you even a Christian? <gasps> are you kidding me? That's your idea of worship? You were sad. There's a lot of people. There's probably some of you in this room that feel the same way. Well, you know, I could get a lot of things done while I'm listening to church. <laughs> COVID has exposed the temperature of a lot of people, the real spiritual temperature for a lot of people. COVID church life has become comfortable. Brother and sister, you are lingering where you do not belong. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I you to listen to me on this. If the Lord has to break your legs to drag you against your sin-loving, hell-bent will out of Sodom, oh, He'll do it. If He has to shake your world to wake you up from this stupid slumber that you're in, He can and He will do it. You may be lingering a whole like, like light, but God ain't going to lose you. I'm confident of that. He will do some mighty things to bring you out of Sodom. See, here's the fundamental problem with American Christianity culture. It wrongly assumes that God's okay with you being in Sodom. He's not. God's purpose in saving you is not to leave you in Sodom. It's to get you out of Sodom and get the Sodom out of you. That's what God's doing in salvation. It's what he's doing in sanctification. He's not okay with you living in Sodom. His will is to save you from it. You may be lingering now, but not for long. God will not lose one of his own. You may look a whole lot like light right now, but God refuses to lose you. His grace is mighty. His grace is majestic. His grace will move you, and his grace will rescue you even if you are reluctant and lingering. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to preach to these guys. I know I'm out of time. Lord, I wish I had another hour to go on. God, I pray that this word has not been a word of judgment to them, but a word of mercy. Lord, that perhaps you've stirred something in their hearts that's of true substance. That their faith would be genuine, that their faith would be real. God, I don't know what you need to do to wake someone up in this room. But I pray that you would. Pull them out of Sodom, God. Away from their lukewarmness and close to your loving embrace. I thank you for these young brothers and sisters. Give them grace as they go, God. May they persevere and read your word every day, seeking to know you. I know you will not lose them. I only pray that you wake them up so they can experience the joy that they're missing out on in knowing you. I thank you for my friends. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. Sorry to cut it off short, guys, but I know it is time for us to roll. Uh, thank you again for being here Sunday morning. Miss Carrie Ferguson will be teaching Sunday school for you guys.
and I will be preaching in the adult service, and so I, you will see me. You just won't see me in here. Uh, I'll see you in there. So again, 735. Sorry I kept you about four minutes over. Hope you have a great rest of the week, and if I don't see you before then, I'll see you on Sunday morning. You are dismissed. Blessings.